Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Tuesday, November the 13th, 2012, and this is episode 1019 of the Survival Podcast. And I have kind of a cool episode for you today. Not only today am I going to talk about permaculture and the role animals play in it, but I'm going to give you a bonus. I'm going to give you a link in today's show notes where you can go see a new video about 30 minutes long by Jeff Lawton that talks about partly what I'm going to talk about today, which is the role animals play in permaculture and how that can be used to create more sustainability and survivability for all of us and how that can fit into just about any environment from small to large. Um, and then Jeff's video continues upon that and really expands to how permaculture can be used to address many of the coming crises. Uh, there's more to it than that, but I can't reveal it at this, this time, but this is something I'm actually working directly with Jeff on, and I think you'll really enjoy the video that you'll be able to see today. He does ask for your name and your email to send you a link for the video, but I think it's more than worth the cost. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating. You know, Chef Keith Snow is really an awesome guy. He'll teach you how to keep cook seasonally and locally. And remember, he's also a member of our expert council. So if you have cooking questions with all those cool things you're growing in the backyard, send them in uh, through the uh, the Think line. Call 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And uh, ask your questions, send me an email immediately, and Chef Keith will answer those questions. But you want to, right now, get over to his website, HarvestEating.com. Check out his seasonings, his book, his membership program. He's just a great guy, and he'll help you make uh, cooking a live school. And remember, Chef Keith has his own podcast. You can find more about that at HarvestEating.com. Remember, we have a special appearance with Chef Keith coming up for Thanksgiving week. It'll probably air on Tuesday uh, of Thanksgiving, and it will be all about cooking in different ways and stuff like that. If you have any questions about Thanksgiving cooking, specifically that don't have to do with turkey or mashed potatoes, something that's a little bit different and unique, send uh, those to me with Thanksgiving for Keith in the subject line, and I'll make sure he gets them when we make it part of the show. Uh, next up. Uh, do consider checking out our new gear shop. We are back with TSP gear. The Every Citizen of Sentinel t-shirts are awesome. The design on them is absolutely awesome. You can find the new gear shop at tspgear.com. And check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper coins. And consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Uh, if you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And you get really great discounts. Can't tell you what it is. Can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you this. I've already got a deal worked out with uh, Jeff Lawton uh, that I'm going to have a discount for you guys in the future. It'll pay for the entire cost of your membership. So how about that as an incentive to uh, join the Member Support Brigade? If you like what you hear today, you want to learn more about permaculture, this one benefit is going to be awesome. Just can't tell you what it is yet. When we're ready to tell you what it is, I'll actually have Jeff on the show again. And we can talk about it. I might even have a little mini segment coming up with him later this week. We'll see. I do have a conversation scheduled with Jeff today. All right. With that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. So um, I, I want to start out with kind of why we need to look at bringing animals into the equation in the first place if we're going to practice permaculture. Now, a real quick overview of permaculture is that permaculture is using naturally designed systems 
to create sustainable systems. So we look at a forest and we say that forest works every day. When we say works, it reproduces, it, it dies, falls to the ground, it regrows. Nobody goes in there and waters it. Nobody goes in there and tills the soil. Nobody tells it what to do, but yet it functions and it has a huge yield. Now, it may not be the yield we're looking for. If it's oaks, it's got a lot of acorns. It's a yield we can use, but not that we traditionally use. Uh, it's got a huge yield in things like just straight biomass. If you think about your average backyard with a few oak trees or elm trees or whatever, you know, not really a forest environment, and then the leaf fall, and how many leaves people spend their time raking up to get out of one small yard. Now, take that into a forest situation over, you know, a hundred acres of densely planted forest, and how much yield is there in just leaf drop and twig drop? And you realize it's massive, and that's part of what's building that soil. So we look at those systems and we emulate them. And what we can say is, well, in that system over there, oaks are the overstory. But if I live in an area where things like cherries and apples and pecans will do well, then I can have an overstory instead of hickory and oak and elm of cherry and apple and pecan. Right, So I can change the species and follow the pattern and build a seven-layer system. I don't want to go too deep into the actual components of what makes up permaculture today, but I just did a video on, or not a video, uh, an episode on permaculture lessons I've learned this year. And I, at the beginning of that video, if you have, or that, that I'm sorry guys, I've just done some video work and it's confusing me. Um, at the beginning of that podcast, I really go into the ethics, the prime directive, and what permaculture is. I'll put a link in today's show notes if you want to refer back to that and kind of come up to speed on permaculture as a whole. But the, the whole concept is, if you look anywhere that man just stops screwing with stuff long enough, nature starts to repair the damage. First we get pioneering weeds, then we get pioneering shrubs and small trees, and then the thing successes forward, right? So it goes into a, a climax stage, then do a decline, and then rebuilds, and it does it all by itself. And if you just leave a place alone long enough, it will turn into a miraculous forest or a scrub forest or whatever the climate type and the contours of the land and the precipitation will allow. But it will, it will become something unless we're looking at the middle of a sand desert. Then we can say that human beings being intelligent creatures with the ability to understand and then design, can look at those systems and say, why does that system work? Where does it work best? How does it work? Where does it grow fast? Where does it go slow? And can look at certain things and say, okay, if we set this up the way that, it's, that, that it works optimally in nature when it happens by chance, and we make a site specifically function at a high level, we can speed the whole process up. Okay, So that means if we do things like go in and put swales in, a swale is nothing but a ditch on contour. In other words, most ditches, it rains. You look in them, what's the water doing? It's going somewhere. They're designed to take things away. Where a swale ditch is dead level, and the dirt that comes out of it gets put on the downhill side, and it's never compacted, it's soft. And when water flows into that ditch, instead of flowing somewhere, it stops. It seeps into the ground, and it begins to flow through the ground versus over the ground, downgrade, it seeps into that berm on the other side, and it hydrates the land downgrade from the swale. So that's how a swale works. So if I go put swales into a system, then I can begin to make better use of the precipitation that falls on 
the land. And I can go into nature and see trees that fall over on a grade that eventually get pushed by forces down and settle to contour and a, a natural organic swale builds up against that fallen tree. And I can see nature do it by happenstance. And then I can bring in a bulldozer or a track hoe and I can do it on purpose. Right? So, That's the basic concept of it. When we look to nature and we design what nature does. But when we look at any system in nature and say, how did it progress from a barren field to a scrub forest or the beginnings of a woodlot or what have you in five years, ten years, 50, however long it takes, depending on how optimum the situation is by just leaving it alone, we'll always find animals as part of the system. We'll always find it. And the more animal activity, as long as it's not to the extent that it does damage, the faster the system will progress. And, and he, here's why we have to understand, or what we have to understand, to understand especially in the developmental phase of going from flat to clumpy, right? To going from just a bunch of weeds and grass and pasture type stuff, low quality pasture, to shrubs, bushes, climbers, clumpers, big trees, little trees, when we're making that change, what's actually happening on a biochemical level to house soils being built. And we don't really need to know this, but it's interesting and it helps the whole thing make more sense. When you look at a pasture like the Great Plains, a giant savanna pasture, a few trees here and there, but mostly open plains, soil's being built as long as we don't start destroying it. What happens is we get a big, deep grass net, of roots and perennial grasses that hold the soil together, and then ruminants like buffalo or uh, deer, or if we bring cattle in, come through, they eat the grass, they defecate back to the ground, and they cycle the cellulose material so that it can be more rapidly broken down and contribute nutrient back to the soil. Now, where's the nutrients coming from? A lot of places, there's a lot of energy being created through solar activity as these plants grow. But a great deal of like the, the calcium and, and phosphorus and, and all these other nutrients are actually being mined by deep roots from the subsoil, mineral subsoil, up into the plant, processed through the animal and dropped to the ground. And that makes it bioavailable so the next succession of plants can get that material more easily and become more and more nutrient-dense and function better and more optimally. But as long as that system pretty much stays in a savanna-style situation, it's almost entirely dependent on, at some point, animals grazing that cellulose to create a bacterial soil building mechanism when you know you got cow patties or buffalo patties or deer turds or rabbit turds or whatever and they sit in the ground as they begin to get moist in the wet season seep into the ground it's it, there's fungus there but it's primarily a bacterial system because there's only so much biomass if you think about an acre of grass and you cut it all and how much that weighs compared to an acre of large trees and all the leaves that fall and how much that weighs, there's a lot more biomass in a forest system because you're only producing biomass in a grass system about two, three feet high and maybe in some places a little higher. But when we look at a tree-based system, you could have trees 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet or more high and all of that producing biomass that eventually hits the ground. That huge amount of biomass is like nature's giant compost pile. 
And as that builds up and gets wet and begins to apply pressure to it, there's some animal droppings and things in there as well, but you get a much deeper leaf litter drop, and you get a wet leaf litter drop, and you start to get the building of a fungal net, and you start to get a fungal breakdown. So when we look at a field and we want to go to forest, we're not just changing the vegetation. We're changing the way soil is built. We're beginning with a bacterial breakdown and eventually transitioning to a fungal breakdown where we'll have less animals, specifically ruminant-type animals, on the land because they're not going to have cellulose there. They're going to have berries and nuts and leaves, and that's seasonal based on mass drop. So they can come through and eat insects and things like that, but your heavy grazing animals are not going to spend a ton of time in the forest, or they're going to bed in the forest, or they're going to go seasonally in the forest, but they're going to always stay near edges so that they can get out into a savanna where they do their bacterial thing, which is large amounts of waste drop to the soil. And the reason we need to understand animals in permaculture is because what I've just described to you is how just about every field in savanna becomes forest. Or, another way to look at it, you have great big fields and you have forest that edges those fields and slowly over time the forest marches forward and advances and takes up the fields. If nature does it that way, then we can do it that way. And if we don't understand that somewhere along the way, and it's not that there's no fungal soil creation in a garden, especially we do things like woody beds or hugo culture where we bury wood. There's a lot of fungal stuff going on there. And we want that fungal hyphae even in a pasture or what have you. But it's what is the dominant means by which the soil is being built. Is it wet, winter-based fungal breakdown? Or is it long-term... Uh, dry, wet, dry, wet, dry, wet cycling of large amounts of cellulose through animals. And as the system progresses, nature kind of hands off the dominant way that soil is being created. And if we want a sustainable system, we need deep, fertile, mineral-rich soils that allow for large amounts of fungal net so that the plants can symbiotically share. And it's very hard... To get there on a large scale, let's say a half acre or more, without animals. We can do it, but it's difficult. So let's talk about two different things we could use chickens to do. Let's start out with what Jeff shows you in the video. you got to watch this video. It's just awesome. They come out, and they get, and he's got a chicken house made out of the bed of an old pickup truck on wheels, so you can move it. A little solar panel that runs electro fencing. It covers, it's a 50-meter electro fence, so it covers 150 meters every time they run this cycle. The, the chickens live inside the little house at night to be protected and lay eggs. And you move it each time you need to move it. You set them out there for a couple weeks. You let them go. And they go out during the day. They stay inside their electro fence. They scratch the heck out of the ground till it's pretty much bare. You go in. Anything that's left, a few weed clumps here and there are easy to pull out of the ground now. You lay down a layer of mulch. Uh, well, before you do that, you move your fence. You move your chickens to your next uh, 150 square meter area. And you lay down a layer of mulch and you start doing your plantings. Maybe you water it in really good. But you'll find that after the chickens have done their thing there, you can stick your hands in the soil and begin. It's crumbly. It starts to get structured. And what have they done? Well, they've gotten rid of all the stuff you don't want. 
You've had to give them some supplemental feed to do this because unless there's really high nutrition stuff there, they, they needed some supplemental feed, but they've, they've gotten rid of every egg of every insect, every insect, every pest. They've broken the pest cycle, but they've also acted as a grazer. Even though chickens aren't really grazers, they will graze on a lot of this stuff. They've had their supplemental feed, and they've had whatever components of the stuff they've scratched up they wanted to eat that they've consumed, and they've pooped. And they've pooped all over that 150 square meters. You now have a clear 150 square meter area. You now have it completely fertilized with chicken manure, high nitrogen stuff, stuff that you would normally have to compost because it's so well spread out, so scratched in, you, it, you don't have to compost it. It, it's acting the way it would in nature, so we're not taking a big giant bunch of it and throwing it on our plants uncomposted that would, would burn them. We have this thin layer spread perfectly and turned in because gee, nature knows what it's doing. As the chickens are preparing the next spot, we come in and we plant our trees, our bushes, our vines, everything we want to grow, everything we want in our food forest, including our support species. As that forest begins to grow, many of the trees and bushes we plant are there specifically to produce mulch and nitrify the soil. So they're legume species trees. They're not going to be there in 10 years. There's going to be more trees planted to be killed over the forest development, because this is how nature works, and we're just going to speed it up, then we'll exist when we have the mature system. As that system progresses, we'll go in and we have these fast-growing little weed trees, if you want to call them that. Nature's repairs. They grow up four feet, we cut them off at two and throw it right on the ground. And we start to make that conversion from a bacterial-based chicken system to a forest-based fungal system. And we can just follow the chickens and make that forest as big as we want with progression and decide how much we want to create. Here's the interesting thing. Once the forest matures, and it's, it's got the, the trees and the bushes and stuff up high enough that the chickens are scratching under it instead of destroying it, we can put the chickens back in there. We can put it back in there. We can free-range the chickens in the forest instead of pasturing them. Now the chickens have the opportunity to break, continue to break cycles and bring a bacterial component into the fungal-based system. Maybe we want a little bit of area for them to have open area and pasture, but we can spend, they can have a lot of time in there and not be tractored so much because the mature system can handle them. And they can eat acorns and berries and anything else that that system produces. They can go in there and keep that system maintained for us. So that's one way we can use chickens to build a food forest. What if I don't want a food forest? Or what if I don't want a food forest in a particular area? What if I really want a nice piece of pasture? Uh, this is not what Jeff shows, but I can basically do the same thing with a little less intensity of the chickens. I can go in, I set my chickens up the same way I just described. I've got a mobile chicken coop. Or if I have a permanent fixed chicken coop, it's not really that hard to move chickens out to a paddock and back to their house. Especially if you're working at maybe a half acre, acre field, and they have a main chicken poultry house little bit of chicken feed and they'll follow you and you open the gate and they go in and then you 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 know you graze them there. Now I wouldn't take if I'm doing this for pasture, I wouldn't take it down to the bare soil. I would take it down almost to the bare soil. So I would I would run them a little bit less. 
and I would set up you know, a water system where I can get water out to that, that site. And as soon as I move the chickens off, I get my pasture mix, and I see the, the, the high-quality pasture mix behind the chickens. And I keep progressing the exact same way. And eventually I restore the pasture, and then I can continue to pasture chickens and geese on that pasture, or chickens, geese, and turkeys on that pasture. If I want to stick with small animals, I can go and step up and bring in pork and goats, or even step up to cattle if I have enough space. But I can start with something small that's not going to overdo things, that's more easily moved and controlled in the initial stages, which, let's face it, if you have a field that's mostly dirt, then you're getting, you know, your prairie chickens, your pheasants, your typical fowl are water out there initially. Your buffalo aren't spending a lot of time in a field that doesn't have a lot of grass for them. They kind of go past that in a herd mob grazing mentality. So we're mimicking nature. And we can see that nature's done both forest and field. When we first had people come over here and explore North America, they got to the Great Plains, there wasn't a big forest in the Great Plains. It was a natural plains-based system. And then, you know, on the East Coast and West Coast, on both sides of it, was mostly a natural forest-based system with clumps of that in between. It's the same thing. It's just, as the architect, I can use something like a chicken or a duck or a turkey or a goat or a cow, and I can do these same things with any animal that will behave this way, that will eat cellulose, that will scratch, tear up the ground, that will defecate, and that can be moved on easily. Just about, But I have to look at what am I starting with, and if I'm starting with something that's really, really poor quality, a chicken can handle it better than a cow. I mean, I'm basically going to be feeding a cow hay if I have really poor quality pasture. There is just like barely anything there for the cow to eat. And the only thing he's doing is walking around stomping some straw and uneaten hay and defecating. He's not really working with what's there. But the chickens will. You know, if it's a little bit better quality, I can bring goats into that. But they need at least something to start with. Where I can take chickens in as long as there's anything there. Right? I can use them to progress and improve the system. And if you listen to that, you might think, well, yeah, great, but I only have like a half of an acre or something like that. Well, you can develop an entire pasture system the same way, even with small acreage. You know, you can build, you can do this with chicken tractors instead of chicken paddock. Or, you know, really, I think that maybe pack, paddocking is a little bit easier to do. And, and this is, this is emulating nature. And we can do this with other animals like ducks. Ducks won't scratch the way chickens will. But they'll go after certain pests with more fervor than chickens. And they're more, because they don't scratch the same way, they're more delicate on the landscape. If they have what they need, um, ducks can be let go and even in areas around your main gardens and they'll do very little damage to the main gardens. If they start getting to a point where they're hungry and they're not finding enough forage, they will do things like eat your lettuce and, and stuff like that. But the, a chicken is going to get in the garden and start scratching immediately. When we bring chickens into a garden bed area, it's okay, we've, we've, we're done with this bed for right now. We want it processed. And we'll you know paddock the chicken in or tractor the chicken over the bed and let them take it all, let them take it down. Ducks, we can move them through there. But if we build a system, we can come in with, a, with, with chickens 
or goats or hogs, and we can progress a system from pasture to forest with ponds in, incorporated into this, and then we can free-range the ducks into a forest. So we can literally have a food forest that's dedicated to chickens and ducks. Again, Jeff's video shows this brilliantly. Another component we really need to look at is the role that animals play in nutrient bioavailability. So we have plants that are dynamic accumulators. Let's say dandelions and comfrey are some good examples. In the annual spectrum, maybe some different types of radishes, daikon, uh, oilseed radishes, or mustard plants. Anything with a long taproot, carrot-like shaped root generally is a pretty good dynamic accumulator because you see that root and you see it's like a foot deep. And what you don't realize many times is there's a little hair root that comes off the tip of it. That little hair root, you would think, doesn't have a lot of power. But since it's so fine and it has so much downward bars of pressure and it can find its way, because remember, roots don't grow in soil, they grow in between soil. They find gaps, and the smaller and more narrow the root, the better it is at finding gaps. So that little hair root might go another two feet down into the soil. And when you pull it up, it breaks off, but it's there. And those roots themselves, if the system is beginning to progress, it has organic matter and life in it, if you dig it up and there's earthworms in there, right, and little bugs and little critters and creatures, and you have that going on, then the other thing that's going to be in there is we've started that transition from almost 100% bacterial-based soil development into some fungal components. And the fungus... Send out this little net, little white strings all in the soil. And some of those little white strings actually attach themselves to the roots of plants. And they symbiotically share nutrients and other things. And that means not only is that little hair root going down that far, but that little hair of fungus is into that little fungal hyphae highway. right? And remember this. A good quality living square meter of soil has 500 kilometers of soil of, of fungal hyphae in it. So all that hyphae network is getting every little bitty thing it can, and it gets it to this plant, this really hardy dynamic accumulator, and it puts it in there, and it comes up, and it, and it delivers it to its leaf systems, and it takes part of the photosynthetic component of it, and it's growing, and eventually it dies and it falls to the ground. And many of the nutrients that were too deep or simply not available to the plants around the comfrey or the dandelion that have a different type of root system, now it becomes available to them to a degree. But something is lost as it sits there and dries out and rots and gets trampled around it or what have you or just falls over and then grows back again. But if something comes along and eats it, processes it through the gut system, and then defecates it to the ground, the bioavailability increases and the nutrient availability increases uh, overall. So animals will process nutrients and minerals with these plants and make it available to the other plants so the system can go faster than the system can do it without the animals. You can do things like get nitrogen into your soil by planting legumes, things like cowpeas and clovers or leguminous species of trees. Uh, will all form with bacterium uh, a symbiotic relationship, and the roots will produce little nodules of nitrogen. And when the plant dies or is pruned, 
the roots will either die or they'll prune back. If like you have a large tree and you prune half of the canopy, about half of the root system will prune back and release that nitrogen into the soil. And you can do a lot with that. But animals do it much faster. It's why, you know, in, in old times when there were no chemical fertilizers, that manure was so highly valued. It was one of the most expensive commodities you could get. Uh, I did the show on uh, the Edo period of Japan where the samurai riding his horse through town would have a servant following him, and every time the horse took a crap, the guy would pick it up and take it home for the samurai's garden. I mean, you got to put a lot, you got to think about that. You got to put a lot, because the samurais, is, if you remember that show, and uh, I, I'll put a link to that show as well today if you haven't heard it, the samurai of the time were like the middle class, especially the middle class samurai. They, it's not like they were just had money to burn and they could afford to have a servant to pick up crap just because that's what they wanted. No, they did it because it was so valuable. And if they didn't have a servant back there, somebody would have run out and grabbed it and threw it somewhere. It was considered highly, highly valuable. And, and that's why, because, and they didn't understand the chemistry at the time, but it's not just nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. There's all these other minerals that get cycled through animals. So the animals perform multiple functions. It's not just their waste. It's not just their behaviors. But what we have to understand is as good as an animal can be for a system, if allowed to overgraze or overbehave and not controlled by humans, they can do equal amounts of damage. You guys know I'm looking for a new house. I think I found one. I think I found one. I think we're putting an offer in today. It's only three acres, but it's an amazing place. And it's close to Dorothy's family. And it's not as far out as I want it to be. And I'll be setting up another type of bug out location because I think that I'm, I'm done with uh, this one here. I think it's ready to be handed off to somebody else to take forward. Um, but it's, it's, it's an amazing property. But there's pasture on it that I walked out on and I went, Slightly abused, just it's like a one-acre strip of pasture. Slightly abused, moderately abused, heavily abused. You could just see it in order. And I'm talking to the real estate agent, and she's like, "Well, what do they have here?" So I get down on the ground and I look at the you know dried-up excrement from the dry period of time that we're we're in, where it doesn't just you know. And I look at it, and it looks kind of like little deer turds. And I'm going probably goats, and then I go to the barn, and there's a certain smell in this little barn there. And it smells very goaty. And I look at the feeder, and it's a low feeder that's designed to keep food off the ground. And goats generally will not take feed from the ground. They'll, they'll browse the ground. I'm like, it was goats. And then there's two circular pens, one on each side of the barn, um, built with, uh, with hog panels, uh, hog fence panels. And uh, you can see exactly what happened. They let these goats run on the pasture. The goats gravitated to the front side of the pasture. Uh, that's because the ground is a little bit uh, better there initially before they overgrazed it. They, they overgrazed the hell out of the whole pasture. Eventually, these people decided, hey, wait a minute, these goats are ruining the very pasture we're, we're feeding them with, and started confining them to these two areas and feeding them mostly hay. And you, It was amazing that you could look at the property and you could see the story of, of the, the attempt and the failure and the response to the attempt and the failure. And the reason I could see that, and I could tell that whole, and, and this lady that, she's a pretty good agent, you know, and she did, you could tell that she knew I wasn't like pulling this out of my butt. And she's looking at the whole thing and she was amazed that I could sit there and tell you this story. 
And I guarantee if we go to the owners of this property and say, tell us the story of the goats, this would be the story. And that is an example of the animals not being controlled and not being maintained. And the solution of the two little areas for the goats to stay in is something that maybe you use for parts of the year. We want to paddock them around, and we could probably, if you want pasture, and we get some irrigation into the situation, even with just some small ponds and some swaling uh, and, and some things like that, bring in some trees to provide some shade in certain areas, not really a food forest, more of a savanna design. We could probably graze those goats a great deal on there throughout the year uh, with a small herd without damaging, actually improving it, but we got to pay attention to what we're doing and we got to control them. And if we don't do that, then we're going to have problems. So maybe we have to paddock them for a while, and once they've gone one rotation on paddock, they come back into their contained area. Maybe they're fed then with, with hay or some sort of supplemental feed, and then they go back through the system again. And then there's certain times of the year where we have to be really, really careful about any grazing at all. Because if we, if we, if we put them on there in too small an area, no matter how much we move them, they're going to damage the system. Now, here's how this is interesting. I am a new subscriber to a magazine I highly recommend. It's called Acres Magazine. I've got two issues of it now. I really love it. I've never seen the word permaculture in it. It's primarily small-scale organic farmers farming, you know, anything from small-scale market gardens up to a couple hundred acres or more. It seems who, who the target market is. One article I just read was on dealing with drought. Uh, and a farm in Missouri, and a, the, the couple were, were ranching cattle. Let me tell you what they did even though they probably don't even know the word permaculture, and you tell me if this sounds permaculturist based on the lessons you've had today so far. So they get into this, this point in time where they realize there's drought, and there's going to be drought, and the pastures are starting to be stressed. And they know that if they don't act now, and this is a two-year drought cycle, these last two years of drought, here's how they handled it. Immediately what they did was they chose the, the, the cattle, the steers, Uh, they decided were the lowest quality of what they had, and they reduced their head count by about 25% immediately. They sold them off and said, if it starts raining, we can always buy them back. If we start starting to have to feed hay, our profit's gone. So they immediately sold surplus stock off to a neighboring ranch upstate that was not in the same drought conditions, that had better ability to deal with them. Okay, That way they could keep the best of their stock healthy. They, they, they had a fairly large operation. They had the, the cattle grazing in what you call two mobs. Is the mob grazing is the term that's being used now in uh, you know natural uh, uh, organic style grass-fed cattle. Uh, we would call it paddock shift in permaculture. They immediately combined the two mobs into a single mob to keep them in a smaller area and began to move them on paddock so that they were putting less stress on the land and saving, because even if the grass is dry, as long as it's there, they can eat it. As they got into the second year and the drought was still going to be there, they had a profit from the, the cattle that were big enough for slaughter. They further reduced their head count, and they continued the paddock shift. And they made sure that they were never overstressing the land, but let the grass grow really tall where it would grow. So the cattle were mainly eating the tops of the grass in a very high nutrient state 
and the stubble and the and the uh, and the roots were remaining, so that when the cattle grazed it, we didn't have bare earth and we didn't have erosion and more damage. And they rode out through the drought with this. They did such a good job of managing it that they took one trip to South Africa and another trip, I think, to the Caribbean for like two and a half, three weeks in the middle of this drought and were able to let their interns manage the herd while they were gone because they had the whole system set up and planned in advance. Now, this is smart cattle ranching, and these people wouldn't call themselves permaculturists, but didn't you just hear the same story? Didn't you just hear the same story? And this is where permaculture is going mainstream sometimes without the word being used because of the hippie connotations that are in it. I'm not going to let that happen to me. I'm not going to stop using the word. And when people try to make it hippie-ish, I put it this way. There are hippies that drive cars. Driving a car does not make me a hippie. And I don't really have any problems with hippies as long as they don't ruin things. And only a small portion of hippies actually ruin things for other people. So that small segment, that small slice of a small slice, is not going to prevent me from using a word that I think is the best description of what we should be doing as modern survivalists. People wonder sometimes, why do you spend so much time on permaculture? Oh, I don't know. It's a system designed to create a permanent culture, and I'm concerned with liberty, independence, and survivalism. Huh. If I have a system that creates eternal abundance and sustainability, and I'm concerned with survival, then I am not so concerned about surviving anymore because I have a system that addresses the concerns directly related to survival. I can feed and clothe and keep myself warm. I have uh, the ability to provide for myself and others, and I'm given a directive... Because the prime directive of permaculture is the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for myself and that of my children. That's a textbook definition of survivalism to me. Now I'll tell you another story of a, another house we looked at with the complete uh, and total destruction of a system. So we were out looking at a property. There was a house that had about five acres. It ended up having about two acres and grass in the front yard that was manicured in a typical way that uh, a typical person that thinks they're a rancher or farmer that isn't wants it to look. Mowed grass, you know, uh, Bermuda, Raleigh, St. Augustine, that type of thing. Sprinklers everywhere. Have to tear up the, and it wasn't terrible, but it just wasn't great. And the neighbors were really, like the neighbors were living in a bus, literally living in a bus. So that kind of made it out of it. But we're there, so we're going to look at it. The house was okay. About two and a half acres in the rear of the house was completely full of animals. Goats, chickens, sheep, and ducks. All fenced in with multiple housing structures, uh, all in a kind of a forested area. And uh, like a creek, a dry creek bed running through the middle of it. And there wasn't anything green on the ground anywhere. There wasn't a speck of green on the ground. And the only reason the trees that were there were alive is they were big enough to be above the browse line of the goats and the sheep. And they were all penned in there. And the only way that these animals were being sustained was 100% by the people that were keeping them bringing water and food to them every day. That was the, they're basically, they might as well, they were basically in a giant cage. It's not much different than setting up a little cage and putting one animal or two animals in it. It was just a giant cage with a bunch of animals in it, all back there together. They looked like they were doing okay. They had plenty of shade to get out of the heat, but they were laying in dust and dirt except where straw had been laid down for them, which has to constantly be done as well. 
the earth under their feet, you could just look at it and see how hard packed it was. It was in some places, it was almost, and this is a place with generally like a sandy loam style soil, but the, the earth back there almost looked polished in certain areas. Like, you know, like if you've ever seen like clay when it gets dug out by a backhoe, sometimes where it, it gets compressed, it'll have a little bit of a sheen to it. And a lot of places it was either dust or so compacted it was into a sheen. And all of these animals running around back there. And you look at it and you go, you know, if you removed a few trees here initially to bring in some light, planted some more sustainable species, and moved these animals around in this area, this system would be green and lush and thriving. And instead, what you have is trees that are basically making it because of this dry creek bed acting like a swale and keeping enough hydration down in that deeper soil. But the trees don't have a real good future long term if it's continuously managed that way. Animals that require constant work to maintain and are doing nothing for the landscape. So that's the other side of things. If you're going to deal with animals in confinement, you have to reduce the space that they're given. If you just constantly confine them to an area and overstock them, they'll destroy the area and you're better off in more of like a barnyard, pigs in a pigsty, that type of situation with a smaller group of animals and bringing food to them that way. It's much easier to manage them and it's much more reasonable. What happened with these people is they liked having animals. They fancied themselves ranchers or farmers or whatever and every opportunity they probably got from somebody said, hey, you want our chickens or whatever, they just took them. And it was a ridiculous level of stock back there. And you could tell that the animals were happier than they would be in a, you know, a, a feedlot or something like that. But they weren't really thriving. They weren't really happy. They were just laying around like, oh, I don't have nothing to do here. Because the only behavior that they could, they could have was sleeping, eating when fed, and drinking from you know, a watering container. There was no grazing. There was no places to go kind of lay around in the grass and or chickens. There's almost no, you know, they had to basically set up a, a sandbox for the chickens to have a dust bath area because the other animals had trampled the ground so much, there wasn't even a good area for the chickens to have a dust bath, and they've got to have that. And they had a little area set up, and you could see that it was so the chickens had grit. Right, so they had to, they had to like, address the animals' needs instead of harness the animals' behaviors. This is the other side. This is the danger when it comes to using animals. Let's talk now about some more small-scale ways to use these animals, though. Let's say we live in an area where we can get away with having some ducks. Four, five, six ducks or something like that. We've got a small lot, a quarter acre or something like that. We've got a really nice garden uh, out there. Well, those ducks, we know if they, we're going to probably have to feed them a lot more than we would if, if they were on you know, a larger piece of property. But they will forage quite a bit. And uh, depending on what's available, they may be able to get the majority from forage. We may have to supplemental feed them, but it's pretty inexpensive to feed a few ducks. The ducks give us eggs, and the ducks provide pest control for us, and the ducks provide entertainment. It's pretty entertaining to watch ducks walk around and play with each other and, and stuff like that. Now, you think we need a lake for ducks. We don't. We don't even need water. But let's say we have the space for it, and we want to give them a nice place to bathe. So we go out and we get ourselves something like a two-foot deep, by eight foot round stock tank from a place like Tractor Supply. It's got a drain in the bottom of it. Okay? A little faucet we can turn on and off. 
And we create some little, you know, maybe we put some stuff around it to make it look attractive, either rocks or put it up against a fence, do whatever we can. So it doesn't just look like a kiddie pool sitting out there. It looks like kind of more of a natural environment. And we create some kind of a little system that allows the ducks to walk up a ramp or whatever and get into their little pond, if you want to call it that. And we make sure we have a way to, to add water to it whenever we need to add water to it. And that'll hold for us about 600 gallons-ish in that range. If we're really kind of switched on, maybe we have a shed or something out there, or maybe this thing's near enough to the house that we can channel rainwater off of roof catchment into it. We create an overflow system where whenever it overflows, it naturally irrigates our garden, and we put it uphill from the garden so that anytime we want to use the water that's in it to irrigate our garden, we turn that little switch and it gravity feeds and irrigates our garden. Now, it's irrigating our garden, but it's also bringing us duck poop. Right, ducks go in the water and they like to shit in the water. So we're we're fertilizing every time we water. Now the ducks are doing that for us because they're a low impact animal. They're not scratching up the yard. They're not damaging the garden. They don't require the intensive management that a chicken does. They will provide us eggs if we allow them to reproduce. If we have a big enough area to support it, you know, we can have a broody mother bring us up one little flock of chicks every year, and they can be used for meat animals. Now we're doing the same type of thing, and we're understanding our limitations. If we're going to have chickens in that environment, we're going to have to have maybe multiple chicken runs. They're going to have to be controlled. They're going to have to be fed a lot more. We can't just let them go tear the garden apart or completely, you know, scratch the ground everywhere. Occasionally they can come out. They can be monitored. They have to be treated more like a highly managed pet than they do true livestock that's given a little bit more leeway. But we can adjust and we can adapt to that. I am gonna hopefully the guy that commented on the blog will get in touch with us. I want him to come on and talk to us about quail and raising quail. Some guy commented on the blog. If you're out there listening, dude, really fill out the form. Let me get you lined up with Dorothy and get you on the show. Uh, that said that he's producing just literally tons of quail and quail eggs in his garage. He has them all in his garage. They're quiet. They do their thing. He produces way more meat in the same footprint than you could ever do with rabbits, and he gets like gazillions of quail eggs, which are a good cash crop. And he's doing that in a garage. Well, that can be done in a backyard, small quail tractors. Jason Acres has done quail tractors. So quail are a much more quiet bird. And a lot of you guys that live in a place where they say no chickens, maybe you need to look at quail. Small eggs, but really high quality, highly valued eggs. A great meat bird. Something that, you know, you could have a few tractors moved around in your backyard. No, they don't really make a lot of noise. They're not really as seen as a big a deal as a chicken and a little bit easier to conceal if this guy's got a buttload of them in his garage. So we can adapt these systems to include animals no matter where we're at, what we're doing. Amy and Joe, uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy down in Florida have a pond of about 300 gallons. They're growing the crap out of tilapia in it. So they don't have to, you know, it's not like the guy out in Arizona that was on Doomsday Preppers that turned a whole pool into a tilapia pond. They're actually able to produce tilapia in a relatively small concrete pond, a garden-style pond. Now, we can start to combine these things. Now, let's look at the suburban environment where we do this. Maybe we have a little flock of about four chickens, a little flock of about four ducks. Probably have more eggs from that than we can deal with. Let's say we don't even have any ganders or roosters, so that we uh, or drakes or roosters. I'm sorry, ganders or geese, so that we're not actually having any reproduction. And let's say we have a dog, and we produce more eggs than we can use. 
We use the eggs to supplement the dog's diet. This makes the dog in a downturn more sustainable. So he's part of the protection system, but we're using, if we, if we have more eggs than we can use, and a lot of times for people with that tight small amount, even if you have, you know, if you only have two or three or four people in the house, it's more eggs than you can eat. That surplus goes to the dogs. The dogs provide protection to the animals, provide protection to the home. Chickens are in a multi-run system. The ducks are able to use their, their, their little pond that you've set up very inexpensively. The pond is able to irrigate and fertigate the garden. Add to that a couple little chicken tractors, or not chicken tractors, quail tractors, and now we've got a fairly intensive meat system, even in a suburban environment. I'm in an area where the neighbors are going to bitch. Then I scale back the pond, I grow fish in the pond instead of putting ducks in it. I use the, the, the waste from the fish to do the same thing that the ducks were doing. I have to feed my fish, but fish food's probably cheaper than chicken food anyway, and maybe I go ahead and bring the quail in. See, I think in a lot of situations where we have people that live in areas go, well, let me have chickens. You want to fight that battle, fight it, but do something in the interim. Do something in the interim. Right? Figure out what will work, what will function in your, your system. Simple things like You want to bring in fertility into your garden? Okay, great. Then put bird feeders around your garden for seed-eating birds. They'll come in, they'll eat seed, they'll defecate. They'll take all the holes of the seed they don't like, they'll throw them to the ground, they'll become part of your mulch and your organic matter. Now I don't actually have to take care of anything. I just have to keep my bird feeders full. There's all types of ways that we can adapt animals to the situation. Sometimes they're wild animals. You know, I think that there's tremendous work to be done with hogs in pasturing. And I think a lot more people are doing it. It's, it's turning into a really good cash option for people that don't have enough space to do cattle. Uh, but they can run quite a few hogs. Hogs actually will do very well in a forest environment. Also paddocked in that forest so they don't run wild. But there's, there's, there's all these ways that animals tie into natural systems. And what we always have to look look out for and remember is that all of the natural systems that are out there that are not systems we built, that are systems nature's built, you'll always find animals as a component of them. And the more of a savanna, uh, plains environment, the more large animals in herds you're going to have. And the more we move toward forest the more in general we reduce the general size of animals and the size of the numbers of animals that travel together. In other words, you will see a pack of wild hogs in the bottomlands of the Trinity River in Texas. You'll see maybe a sow with some piglets, maybe a couple sows with some piglets, maybe even a boar with that group. But you'll only see maybe three or four adults usually. I've seen bigger groups, but that's typical. When you see bigger groups, it's almost always because somebody's, you know, doing the deer feeder thing and they're coming in there and they're being attracted by this high concentration of food. But as they move around day to day, they're much more spread out and lower densities and they're smaller than a buffalo. But if you could go back in time but before we killed most of the buffalo and you go on the Great Plains, you can see seas of buffalo standing almost shoulder to shoulder, mob grazing naturally through the situation. But you would have never seen, you might see buffalo in the forest. You'll see smaller groups, bachelor herds of bulls, maybe wintering over, going in seasonally to feed on things that are there, but they're going to spend most of their time out there eating grass and grazing. That's, that's the behavior, and the behavior has resulted in the very biochemistry that builds the soil in two distinctively different ways, bacterial or fungal. And our goal 
needs to be to move toward the fungal because we have less dependence on animals unless we're grazers. Unless we want to manage you know, uh, uh, pastured beef and pastured pork and things like that, then we need to hold some level of the, the bacterial there. It's not that critical, again, that you really even define it that way. But once you've defined it that way, now you understand what's happening. You understand the management practice. If I'm doing a bacterial-based system, I know I need grazers through there, and I need to not let them overgraze. And I need them cycling the cellulose into material that's going to be primarily broken down through a bacterial measure. If I'm doing a fungal-based, peren more perennial system, right? Not perennial grass, but perennial forest system. I need a massive amount of biomass on the ground, specifically in the cold, wet periods when Rainfall exceeds evaporation and the temperatures are cooler and the humidity is high and that system will break down. And, and, and understanding that then lets me understand as I bring animals into these two distinctively different situations, how am I going to manage them? Am I going to manage them in a large mob graze like I started out with the chickens or am I going to spread them out in time and space in a more free range of environment But I can only do that in a mature system. If I take a half-grown forest that's not matured up yet, and I let chickens into that specifically free range, they can do a lot of harm and damage. If I get into a mature system, and I let them in there, and I control the population so it doesn't exceed the carrying capacity of the system, then they'll spread out. They'll behave much more like a grouse than a prairie chicken. Because the environment will actually channel their behavior. Now, there still may be times I need to pull them into an area. I may need to reserve a more pasture-like feedlot area for some of those forest-ranging animals, depending on how many I want the land to produce. But I can do either or. But I have to understand what I'm dealing with. Once I do that, then I move into an area of sustainability that is something that modern agriculture cannot, can, just cannot compete with. So hopefully you enjoyed today's show. I've talked about these types of things a lot in the past. Um, Jeff's video gave me a lot of inspiration. It's amazing that like exactly what I was thinking about doing is kind of exactly what he's doing with a few twists. Um, I want you to really take the opportunity to go see that video today. Again, it's about 30 minutes long. Go to today's show notes. There will be a link there for you guys to get to that video. It's kind of a long, clunky link, so I don't want you to... Uh, to try to take it down with a pen or paper or whatever. And I'll even do a post later today with, um, with the link in it and talking more about it. And remember, there's something really cool coming with this that Jeff's working on that I think has been a long time coming. I'm happy to see it coming out of the permaculture community. Uh, one thing I think you'll really like is to hear Jeff in this video talk about impending crisis, talk about the concerns of society toward preparedness and being able to look after yourself and being able to figure out how to even conceal certain things. Or if somebody sees what you're doing to see it, it's not just a garden I can raid. You know, it's a tree. Um, I, I think that you'll start to see that you're getting one of the pioneers, uh, one of the true icons of the permaculture movement, Uh, hopefully at least a little bit because of his exposure here with the survival podcast and seeing what we're doing, crossing that bridge that I've always said needs to be crossed between the preparedness, survival community, and the permaculture community. Like The day I understood what permaculture really was, I said that bridge needs to be built. And, and now what you have here 
is a guy that is, if you wanted to ask me who the number one permaculturist in the world is right now, I would probably have to say it is Jeff. Mollison was the founder, but Jeff as a teacher has come into this, and, and Mollison's pretty much handed things off, so like the guy, and, and, you know, at, at worst case scenario, the number two guy in the world that's out teaching right now building that bridge so check out his video and again realize more things are coming again hopefully you had a, a, a good uh, lesson in uh, biochemistry today uh, and animal behavior and it's got you thinking about how you can scale the types of things I'm talking either up to a herd of cattle or down to a few, few quail in the backyard or maybe even just running uh, pigeons and dovecoats and they're just birds that live in my backyard how cool is that Right? They don't have to. They're not livestock. It's like a purple Martin house, but it's a little bit bigger, and pigeons live in there. Ah, they're just birds. They're just birdhouses, right? There's always a way to make this happen. It's up to you to get creative. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you.